Well, the sermon text for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're going to take a look at chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. If you're able, please rise for the hearing of God's holy word. And we read from the Gospel of Matthew in Jesus' holy name. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus said, Aware of their malice, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and we pray that you would sanctify us by that truth. God, as we look at the Gospel of Matthew today, I pray that you would show us our sin and point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen our faith and ready us to do your works. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So how many people out there are really big fans of ketchup? Or uh, ketchup, as my mother-in-law Cindy says. I saw a couple hands. Some of you are crazy about it. Uh, personally, I'm not a huge fan. I, I like mustard a lot more. Even when I put it on my corn dogs, I like it to be about a 70-30 mustard to ketchup ratio. I, I don't mind ketchup on a fry every once in a while or on my cheeseburger, but it's really not my favorite condiment. I'd rather have something else. I could take or leave ketchup. But I've known people that are just completely nuts about ketchup. Uh, if everybody remembers, or most of you should at least, Matt Richard, That guy was nuts for ketchup. When he would eat cheeseburgers, he'd put so much ketchup on it that if you squeezed it, ketchup would pour out, and then he'd put a pile of ketchup on his plate to dip it into. I don't even know why he needed the cheeseburger. He could have just eaten the ketchup. It would have been fine. I also know people who violate the laws of nature and decency and put ketchup on their scrambled eggs. I just don't get it. I don't understand it. Chris and I were talking about this this week, and she said... Her boys actually prefer ketchup to gravy in their mashed potatoes, which, yeah, that's the sound I thought you'd make. That's the sound I made, too. (laughs) I've known lots of people who are crazy about ketchup, but nobody was crazier about ketchup uh, than Gideon Harper. I don't know if any of you saw this at at our potlucks and Wednesday night meals, but Gideon is nuts about ketchup. He had a shirt that says, I put ketchup on my ketchup, and it was true. Most of the stuff he put ketchup on was pretty normal, uh, but there was one thing that was just way over the line for me. He puts ketchup on his strawberry ice cream. I couldn't handle it. He loved it, and good for him. To each their own, God doesn't have any laws in the Bible about ketchup, so we can let this one go. But that, that pairing of ice cream and ketchup is unlikely. And for most of us, I think it sounds pretty gross, but it's, it's a strange, strange mix. But it's not nearly as strange as the mix of folks we have in our sermon text for today. The first group we had that was challenging Jesus was the Pharisees. We know the Pharisees uh, very well. They were part of the Sanhedrin, that ruling class uh, of Jews, 
Uh, They were the ones who were hyper-focused on the external keeping of the law, uh, God's law, and also the man-made laws that were imposed to protect you from ever getting close to breaking God's law. If we lived in the days of Jesus, we would have probably looked up to these folks and wanted to be more like them, or at least we would have wanted the respect and power that they had. Uh, But as we go through the pages of the New Testament, we hear them being called things like hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, and, and much more. They were accused of keeping the law on others while not actually keeping it themselves. And then you have this other group, the Herodians, and we don't know a whole lot about them. There's nothing in extra-biblical literature, and they're only mentioned here in the Gospels. But what we do know is that they were a political group rather than a religious one, and these folks would have been a fan of Herod's rule, of of the Roman government that was in charge in the days of Christ. This would have made them very unpopular people amongst the Jews, Uh, As most of the Jews were longing for and waiting for a Messiah who would come and set them free politically from their foreign oppressors and usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. To make this pairing even more strange, you've got this law in the Old Testament that that I should really bring up because the Pharisees were super concerned about the law. The law is from Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 15, and it says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from amongst your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the people of Israel, according to God's law, weren't supposed to have a foreign king ruling over them, and Herod was a foreign king. So they could in no way support Roman rule and in no way support Herod, because it was a violation of God's law. Now the Herodians had thrown this out. They supported that rule. So this is a very strange pairing. Uh, One group that had rejected the law and the other group that was hyper-focused on the law, they gathered together for a common purpose. We've all heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the Herodians and the Pharisees for a time set aside their differences because of their common enemy, Jesus. And the question that they asked to Jesus that they try to stump him with is, is really the only question that these two very different groups could have asked together. They said, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a very simple question, but the answer that Jesus gave could have had some very significant and serious consequences. The way the question was phrased, Jesus has got two choices, just two options. He can either say, yes, pay your taxes, or or, no, don't pay your taxes. Now, if Jesus chooses either answer, yes or no, he's, he's trapped. If he says it's completely acceptable to pay your taxes to Caesar, the Romans came in, they conquered us, and so there are rightful rulers. They offer us peace, they give us many benefits, they take care of many civil things, and because of that, they deserve taxes and we should pay it so the benefits might continue. If Jesus had done that, he had just said yes, Then the Pharisees could have jumped all over Jesus and accused him of rejecting the law of God, of rejecting God's word, because God's word demanded that they not have a foreign king. And so they could have discredited Jesus 
as a false teacher for rejecting parts of God's law and supporting a foreigner. So yes was not the answer that Jesus could give, but no was also not the answer Jesus could give. He couldn't just say it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar because his rule is illegitimate and we're only supposed to have a Jewish king. Because if he had done that, then the Herodians could have just jumped all over him and accused him of starting or trying to start an insurrection, of trying to stir up trouble amongst the people by telling them to overthrow the Roman government. So this really seems like the perfect trap. Either Jesus says yes, and the Pharisees have him for rejecting the law, or Jesus says no, and the Herodians have him for stirring up rebellion against Rome. It looks like it's a catch-22. But Jesus doesn't choose either of their answers. He has a different answer, a better answer. He asks for the coin that's used to pay the tax. And the crowd that was gathered dug into their own pockets, proving that they accepted at least in some way Roman rule, and pulled out the Roman coin, the denarius. And then he asks, whose likeness is on this coin? And the crowd was forced to say, it's the likeness of Caesar. It's Caesar's inscription on the coin. So Jesus answers, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And then the crowd marveled, and they left. Just like every other time, the religious authorities had tried to chap Jesus by his words or his actions, they failed. Once again, Jesus had the perfect solution, even when it didn't seem like there was a safe answer. We might think that Jesus was just an expert at debate or that he was some kind of rhetorical master, but it really isn't either of those things. The real advantage that Jesus had in these confrontations was that he knew the truth and he never wavered from the truth. The Pharisees and, and Herodians, they presented Jesus with a, with a logical fallacy called a false dilemma. And what that means is they presented him with two possible alternatives, even though there were a broad range of answers available. The options they gave Jesus were pay taxes or don't pay taxes. And by Jesus' answer, he simply exposed their faulty reasoning and showed them that there were other answers. They had tried to trap him, and he exposed them by sticking with the truth. You see, our great enemy, Satan, likes to try to trap us in false dilemmas as well. Perhaps the most dangerous one of these deals with our very salvation, and it's the dilemma between self-righteousness or despair. And it goes something like this. As we read the Bible, we see that God gives us a great many things to do. There are a lot of laws that we are supposed to follow. So do you do what God says and, and go to heaven? Or have you failed to do what he said and are you on the road to hell? See, that false dilemma is the only thing the unbeliever knows. He isn't aware that there's another and better way. Instead, the unbeliever sees that the good guys go to heaven and the bad guys go to hell. And so the question they're left with is, are you good or are you bad? You see, this is the false dilemma of the law. Your first option in this is that you can deny the truth of your sin. You can insist that you truly are one of the good guys in spite of all the evidence, and you can tell yourself that you're going to make your own way to heaven. This is self-righteousness, 
And it directly contradicts what John writes in 1 John chapter 1, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we say we have not sinned, we make God into a liar and his word is not in us. To even say that you hope you are good enough to earn your way to heaven is arrogance and pride. And that's a sin in and of itself. If you go that way, you're lying to yourself and you're making God a liar as well. Your other choice in this false dilemma of the law is to lean into the utter honesty of recognizing your sin and believing that you have no hope. This is despair. Here, too, there's a strange sort of pride, a belief that your sin is more powerful than God. A belief that your sin is so terrible that there's nothing that God or anyone else can do about it. In the case of Judas, the pride of his despair was so great that he took justice into his own hands and took his own life. So what a comfort and relief it is to learn that the two choices offered by the law are nothing but a false dilemma. Just as Jesus provided a third answer to the Pharisees and the Herodians, he provides a third answer to the false dilemma of the delusion of the law. In the middle of John's commandments or, or, or com condemnation, in the middle of John's condemnation of our sin, in 1 John, we hear these beautiful words, right? Hans going back to chapter 1, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the way that God forgives our sin and cleanses us. God has given us a third answer in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the one that made all of this possible. Jesus actually did what God commanded us to do, even though we could not. He kept God's law perfectly, and then he went to the cross, bearing and enduring the punishment that we deserve for failing to fulfill God's commands. In this way, he provided the third answer, the answer that avoids both self-righteousness and despair. You're no longer responsible for your own salvation. Jesus has taken that responsibility for you. He's the one that earned your forgiveness. He's the one who offers to cleanse you from your sin and unrighteousness. Jesus demonstrated the benefits of the third answer by rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father. And those who trust in Christ will also receive this blessing. God will raise them to immortality on the last day, and he will join body and soul once again. On that day, there will be <clears throat> a new heavens and a new earth, for the old creation will pass away. Then our Lord will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning or crying or pain, because the former things have passed away. The Pharisees and the Herodians in today's gospel lesson tried to trap Jesus and discredit him with a trick. When that didn't work, they ended up giving up on their subtlety altogether, and they, only, and they decided that the only way to remove Jesus from the scene was to remove him from his life, to kill him. So during the next few days, they carried out their plan. They arranged to have Jesus crucified. When Jesus was dead, it appeared that the powers of sin, death, and the devil had won. But in truth, the death of Christ was his greatest victory. And it is by that victory that we receive forgiveness, eternal life, 
and salvation. It is by that victory that even though we die, we shall rise again to life and life eternal. His resurrection is the assurance of the work that he did on the cross and the promise that it is ultimate victory. It's assurance that self-righteousness and despair are both false dilemmas and that there is another way in Christ, a way that leads to life and life everlasting. So trust in that finished work of Jesus Christ and know that it is enough even for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the third way. We thank you for Christ. Lord, left to our own devices, we would be left to either despair over our sin or lie to ourselves about its existence. But in Christ, we can honestly confess our sins and you have promised to forgive us. Allow us to trust in that forgiveness and let our faith be active, Lord. Allow us to love our neighbors. As we get ready now to go to the Lord's table, I pray that you would allow us to come freely confessing our sins and come trusting in what you thereafter, the forgiveness won by Christ. We pray this, Lord, in your holy name. Amen.